The Irish Times Inside Politics podcast is going to be holding another live event. This one is in central Dublin on Thursday, May the 16th at 8am. We are going to be in Medley in Dublin too. We only have a few tickets left, so if you want to join me in conversation with head of Ipsos polling in the US, Cliff Young, along with Pat Leahy and Jennifer Bray, looking at the polling in Ireland in the run-up to the European and local elections, just go to irishtimes.com slash events where you can get your tickets. It's Wednesday, November the 8th, and you're very welcome to this latest instalment of the Inside Politics podcast from the Irish Times. I'm Hugh Linehan. With me in studio are Sarah Barden and Fia Kelly. That's him rustling the newspaper in the background from our political staff. Fia, could you just open the newspaper for the first time? Ah, uh, yes, you know. At it bright and early this morning, reading the Paradise Papers for the first time. <laughs> right. Well, um, there's a number of stories around uh, Sarah, but one that's kind of floating around, but I'm really not sure if it is a story, and Fia has, has a piece on it today, is this issue, which is everywhere at the moment, about sexual harassment and bullying and intimidation and inappropriate behaviour. We've seen it in uh, internationally in the media. We've seen it closer to home in the arts and the theatre world. We've seen it across the water around Westminster, where it's caused all kinds of consternation and resignation of, of senior ministers. Uh, in your experience, uh, does Leinster House provide an envi- environment that's conducive to that kind of behaviour? Um, I don't think so. I think, you know, I would echo a lot of what has been said in the uh, past number of days by female representatives of Leinster House that I think it's a very macho um, environment, that it's very male dominated, which can have, I suppose, some consequences. But in terms of, I suppose, what we've what we've seen overseas in Westminster, I don't think that sort of behaviour lends itself to, to Leinster House, from my experience anyway. And and why would that be? I mean, I was I've been sort of educated in the ways of Westminster a bit, Vic, reading about this stuff over the over the last week or so, and it describes a real hothouse atmosphere there. Uh, describes a lot of situations in which you have you know older MPs who are very much sole traders. I didn't quite understand the extent of this. They're mm-hmm. beholden to nobody in terms of their you know the conditions of people that they employ people under and that kind of stuff. Yeah. Usually with younger assistants, lots of people from the media floating around, cheap subsidised drink. Uh, and a lot of people away from home and people working late at night. And all those things seem to be kind of risk Some of those things apply to Leinster House, obviously. You know, people away from home. The drink isn't that cheap, although there is a bar. Um, They do have people working for them. But I think it it probably goes back to the fact that it's a much smaller working environment. And, like, you know, there are people working for the parties and TDs have people working for them. But a lot of the time they are party people. So if I was a TD, you know, I could have an assistant working for me, but that person is more likely to not link to the party rather than to me personally. There's a pool of people. But I think it's just that it's a smaller atmosphere, a smaller environment. It's a very, very small building, Leinster House. Like if you're in the Palace of Westminster, it is vast and it stretches out across Whitehall. Leinster House is much more compact. And I don't think, you know, maybe, I'm not going to say we have a better class of person in, 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 in Leinster House, but these people acknowledge that they're they're in a very small environment. Everybody knows each other and it's Ireland after all. So anything that happens within there is going to seep out. So it's just anyway. because it's smaller, is there a cultural difference? I wonder. Uh, no, I don't want to be saying, you know, people are more moral in Ireland because that's no, clearly I, not I the case. The culture, but are there different ways of, of the, that people interact? or people I think the culture interact? is, that there are similarities with the culture. Like people are around late at night. Voting happens late yeah. at night. People are down from the country. There is media around. The kind of relationships are the same. So there's... There is differences with the culture, but I think it's probably sharper in Westminster and always has been. Would a politician in Westminster or across uh, across the waters, with becoming an elected representative, comes with a lot of responsibility, power and authority. And I think in Ireland, you know, they don't let, I suppose, let that sense of power 
go to their head as much. You know, a lot of mm, the instances. Well, that, that's our job, yeah. <laughs> but um, I think as well, like you know, the, the a lot of the instances that have happened have in across the water have been by people who take you know the power to their head, and I don't think in Ireland that is allowed to happen because it is, I suppose, a cultural thing. You know, when people climb up the ladder, we I suppose we try and drag them back down. Mm. It's our it's our culture, and I think we haven't allowed a situation to develop like the one in in Westminster. The other big difference between Westminster and Dublin is the. Uh, relationship with the constituency is far stronger in Irish politics than it is in the UK politics. Most of our TDs at this stage would say up two nights a week, I would say, Tuesday and Wednesday, and they're gone on Thursday. I remember reading a passage uh, or a column a couple of months ago when a TD in Westminster boasted that he met his constituents once a month. You know, mm. if that happened there in Ireland, they, they would lose their seats. Because seat. they have these guaranteed constituencies for yes. the most part, be they be they red or be they blue. Um, and so they only need to kind of gently tend them from a distance. So they essentially live in London all the time. Effectively, yeah. yeah and, that and you don't have that luxury in Ireland, as mm. Vic says, you're accountable to your constituents. And if you decided, uh, you know, to, to remain in Dublin for a week on end, you'd have your clinics banging down the, you know, your constituents banging down your constituency clinic doors um, on a weekly basis to, you know, ascertain where you are and what you're doing. And, you know, you just can't get away with that level of behaviour. But I think, you know, I do think that um, we can't be as categoric as to say mm, that there sure. isn't mm. sexual harassment in Leinster House because, you know, perhaps people have experienced it and just don't feel comfortable coming forward with it because of the culture in mm. Ireland where it is, um, you know, where it is very difficult well, because... Very much keep your mouth shut and, you know, Yeah, but be, also yeah. because it's so compact and everybody mm. knows everybody in Leinster House, from the ushers to the parliamentary assistants to the people who work in the canteen, everybody is on a first name basis. So it must be, if you were a victim of sexual harassment, it's probably even more difficult to, you know, to speak out and to raise your head in an institution like Leinster House. But, you know, from from our own experience, we've never we've never witnessed or never experienced anything yeah, and like that. That's not that. to say like the odd comment doesn't get passed. The odd slightly off colour comment. Yes, like that that has happened and we have heard instances of that happening and then you'd be aware of that happening. That's not to say that doesn't happen, but it happens very rarely. Like I couldn't hand yeah. on hearts sit here and say in my time covering politics, I've never heard a politician pass a comment upon a female member of staff or somebody else that I myself wouldn't. It has right. happened rarely, occasionally. Okay, but you don't have the the other thing that struck me as we were just saying before we started recording, Sarah, is that uh, my impression is where the kind of environments where a lot of these cases occur again in be in entertainment or arts or or maybe in Westminster is that there's a long queue of kind of eager young people outside the door who want to get on a first ladder of what is seen as a, a, a glamorous world um, and that therefore that kind of sense of, well, you better behave yourself or else there's plenty more, more to come in here and they, they, they'll take the kind of the, the rubbish I'm going to give you. That's not the case in Leinster House. There is no long queue, is there? No, I don't think so. I don't think, as again, there's banging people down. Like Leinster House is probably one of the most accessible places in Ireland. I mean, you literally can arrive at the door and walk in, you know, three seconds later. It's, it, you know, it's, it's not this kind of enigma of glamour um, that perhaps West, Westminster is. A lot of the um, a lot of the issues that have occurred in Westminster have involved alcohol. And I think, you know, that there is a perception out there about Leinster House, that mm. there is a drinking culture that exists in Leinster House. And for my, whatever, four years that I've been com- that I've been covering Leinster House, the drinking culture has all but faded. I mean, it's just not But it not did exist there. in the past. It, it did, did exist. Yeah. I mean, I can't say, I mean, I've heard so many stories from my colleagues like Fiek and stuff about how, you know, Wednesday night was the night you were to be in the doll bar because everybody would be mm. there and, you know, they all stayed up for the voting on the Thursday and they, you know, had a few drinks, whatever. Like if you walked into the bar 
tonight, I'd say you'd find a handful of journalists and probably nobody else. Yeah, that, that, that's a very fair point that the drinking culture that once was there is, is there no longer really. It's much more recognisable as a workplace now. Um, it's a much sober atmosphere. Like you have to just look at Budget Day as the, you know, exemplar of that, that Budget Day is long ago, even when Fianna Fáil were in government and cutting significant amounts of expenditure from, uh, you know, the public public spending system, the, the bar was packed. It, it was, was like a real a event. drawing on Budget yeah. Night there where everybody was they used to have, everybody they, they, used, they yeah. used to take the, I remember they used to take the, 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 the doors of the bar off the hinges because there was no point in having doors and hinges because there were so many people coming and going. This Budget Day, the public gallery wasn't even half full. It's just a different different yeah. atmosphere now. That raises another question I was wondering about. I mean, you were channeling your, your role as a representative of the Millennials in the Irish Times in this uh, podcast last week, Fiat. Um, <laughs> and, uh, and Sarah is, is representative of the same generation. And is there a generational shift? I mean, this might apply both to what we're talking about here, about attitudes towards respecting people's, you know, people's autonomy and identity, and also the way in which people kind of carry themselves about the place and the way they do their work. I think it's probably just the, the atmosphere is more professional, not just in our in our industry, but across the board. Like, you know, I think perhaps as well, you know, the last few years have been tough and anybody who's got a job or held a job in Ireland in the last few years has really felt that they've worked and earned for it and they don't mess about perhaps like people used to before by drinking or doing anything like that. So I think there is a cultural change as well from that, that point of view, but there is a definite change that people perhaps 10, even 10 years ago would have stood for a comment passed at them in a workplace, but will no longer stand for that. I think as well, Joe, due due to the recession, it was a lot more difficult for people of our generation to get jobs. So when you get a job, you tend, I suppose, to invest a lot in your career. And, you know, that culture of, I suppose, like in particular in the media industry, you know, every every Mm. newspaper editor I've ever worked under or... Um, or, you know, older colleague has informed me of the days in which journalists would go out at lunchtime and have, a, you know, a few too many and come back and they'd write the newspaper. I mean, for a journalist... And then be there till very quite much later at night than they often are now as yeah. well. Yeah, you know? uh, but I mean, if you look at, I suppose, journalists now, I mean, we're we're practically, I suppose, chained to our desks in a way where, you know, we don't have the luxury of... Aesthetic, monastic, dull, dry... Yeah, we're very yes, dull. very boring altogether. <laughs> um, no, but I think it, that it, it is, it's not, it's that... As, as we both said, but it is a cultural change as well. Uh, you know, I probably, what I dare say, that, that the workplace is a more equal environment now. Um, to, to have, well, it's not completely equal. It's much more equal than it was 30, 40 years ago. The makeup of Leinster House, although it's still overwhelmingly male, is not as male as it was 30, 40 years ago because we've had gender quotas, because we have, we have now proactive um, activities to try and make it a more friendly place in which to work. So I think it's getting there. So I think all that feeds into the fact that we haven't seen what we've seen in Westminster in Leinster House. What about journalism? And I say that partly because some of the stories internationally have applied to kind of very senior political journalists in the in the United States, for example. And journalism and political journalism is subject to all those same pressures and all those blurrings of lines between work and sociability and all those kinds of things. Are there, have there already any issues there at all? Well, again, I think most media organisations are, you know, are male dominated, you know, um, and I think if you look across the, I suppose the, the main news organisations in this country, the RT Irish Independent Irish Times, they would be a primarily male, uh, you know, staff. You know, they would be primarily male staff, and I think that that does sometimes have repercussions. But I don't think it like I, I suppose 
There's a difference, there's a real difference between sexual harassment and, you know, inappropriate kind of behaviour. And then, and then just, I suppose, sexism, you know, which, yeah. which is rife probably in the media industry as much as it, as it is in other, uh, in other industries. I don't, you know, I don't think we can, we need to kind of, I suppose, not blur the lines. They are, they are kind of connected though. You know, I mean, because, you know, a sexist environment is more likely to be an environment in which this kind of behaviour can occur. True. But I think I think in terms of just when we're looking at this, I don't think that there is a culture of sexual harassment in Mm. the media industry. Is there a culture of sexism in the media industry? Probably, you know, and you're right. One tends to lead to the other. But I do think, as as Fiek has has said, is that there is a cultural change now. Perhaps, you know, 10, 15 years ago, if that sexism was rife in the media industry, you know, female, um, female journalists probably wouldn't be as willing to speak out. But now... As we know, very as we know here in the Irish Times, our female staff are are very vocal and you know willing to to challenge any sexism in in the media industry. Do you think we have further to go though? Yeah, of course. Mm-hmm. I mean, if you you have to I look mean, any look there, at, yeah, at yeah, any yeah. newsroom, I mean, it's just primarily it's primarily male. But again, that lends itself to the working conditions in which you know politicians and journalists endure. Like, I mean, I, I spoke to a, a staff member in the Oireachtas yesterday who said, you know, he was. He started work yesterday at 10 a.m. and he would be in, he would be in work last night until after 11. Mm. Similar today and then on Thursday, 10 a.m. till 20 past eight. I mean, those are just not family friendly, family friendly hours. And perhaps in a way, you know, that that uh, that hinders women probably a lot more than it would it would men. So, you know, journalism, media, politicians have to, you know, have to create a better working environment, not just for females, but for, for men too, to allow us to have a life outside our, our work, you know, and that that's something that, you know... It's been talked about for a long time now. I feel like it's talked about all the time, but it doesn't seem ever really seem yeah. to change. Let's move on. Um, you have a story about the policing authority in today's newspaper, uh, Sarah. This legislation, which is proposed by Fianna Fáil, will be supported by Sinn Féin. It's opposed by the government, so the mathematics tells me it will pass, will it? It will pass, yeah. Um, so and This is what the new world looks this like. This is what the new politics is, but I mean, look, it'll pass, but sure, it doesn't make a difference if the government don't support it, it probably won't progress any further. Um, you know, a lot of we, a lot of motions and legislation have passed, um, but they've never progressed. I think there's only one bill which was... Um, uh, sorry, two bills. One bill by Sinn Féin, TD Pierce Doherty, which was to give the financial uh, financial ombudsman um, more powers. That passed, and then there was a bill. There's a bill currently going through the house by Michael McGrath in terms of variable interest rates. But the police authority one, I think, is particularly interesting because it comes just a week after we had a very damning report from the police and authority, which you know um, said that the there was a additional breath tests that were exaggerated that we weren't aware of. But it goes v- rather deep into the culture of Angarda Shiakona and says that, you know, there is an adequate oversight, um, management, uh, pressurised um, rank and file members into doing, into falsifying figures. You know, it's it's widespread compl- implications for Angarda Shiakona and everybody, you know, is rightly repulsed by it, but it seems only few are willing to do anything about it. And Jim O'Callaghan's bill, you know, it, it, it's very far reaching. And one thing it does say, which I think, you know, it's, it's hard to... to oppose it really is that the Garda Commissioner would have an obligation to tell the police and authority about any internal audit that is underway in Garda mm-hmm. Shia I mean that just seems like 
good practice. Because that has not been happening. Because that didn't happen in particular with the breath mm. test issue. Um, then it goes a little bit further and it says the police and authorities should have, I suppose, more oversight of the role of, a, of the Garda Commissioner. But then it goes on to say that um, the police and authorities should have the authority to dismiss a member of Angarda Shiakon if they believe that that member of Angarda Shiakon is undermining public confidence. Um, so that would be a very significant change. I mean, one can argue the pros and cons of it, but it would be a deeply significant change to the structure and authority of the of the management of the force. Yeah, it'd be pretty significant. Now, I mean, one thing that the police authority did say last week at their press conference was that they had evidence where, you know, having listened to the tapes between individual Gardaí and the information centre in Castlebar, they had evidence where guards deliberately falsified the figures. And on that basis, they felt that those individual guards should face some disciplinary action. Um, now, to go through all the tapes, they said, would take 21 years and a considerable amount of time. But so is there is there a matter of justice in relation to that? Because if you do a sample of something, which was clearly a very, very widespread practice across the organisation, and you do a sample for the purposes of understanding how the process worked, and then as a result of that sample, you identify individuals who are perhaps only two or three individuals out of hundreds of people it is that. Is that not, is that, that strikes me maybe being contrary to natural Well, it just gives a little bit of a concern that some members would be scapegoated at the expense of an entire force Mm. because it was widespread in every single Garda district. But, you know, one of the things the Peace and Authority also said was that the Garda Commissioner issued a direction to each superintendent in each district to investigate the falsification of figures and only 14 of them responded. So that's half of them. So if a, a half yeah. of them just didn't even bother to respond to a request from the Garda Commission. If you have that level of, I suppose, lack of discipline, you know, there should be some repercussions. Now, I can't understand, I suppose, when I haven't sp- spoken to the Minister for Justice last night about this, and he has he has a, a range of uh, concerns about it, but I, I can't understand why there can't be, you know, they can't not oppose the bill and allow it to be taken to committee and then, you know, Add and subtract as it goes al- as it goes along the process. But the Minister for Justice is saying things like there, there are other processes in place at the moment which are supposed to be addressing some of these issues and making recommendations for legislation. Is that part of the objection? Well, I think primarily, I think what his concern is is that it would take a shift of power away from the Department of Justice and the management of Garda Shiakona and give it to the police and authority without adequate resources um, for the police and authority. And as well, I don't think any minister would want to relinquish power um, or, or authority or oversight of, of, guard, of the guards. Hasn't that been a never-ending problem about the Department of Justice wanting to retain that level of control? And that's actually where why some of the some of the issues have arisen because it hasn't been it hasn't been responsible to a, to, a, to an independent authority in some. Well, exactly. Some I mean, you just you're just continuing a culture that has been criticised in report after report and inquiry after inquiry. I mean, there was a specific report carried out in terms of the Department of Justice, which said the Department of Justice essentially is all over the place, really, and needed to have uh, needed to radically reform the department and how it does its business but it's never really uh, it's never really been implemented if you, can, I, can I ask you just a, a, an aspect of this uh, which you can educate me and maybe some of our listeners who are probably better educated than me on this I might have been under the impression that if if, uh, if if a piece of legislation is passed by the doll I don't necessarily expect it has to go straight up to the park to be signed by the president but that that has some kind of serious consequence beyond it just getting buried in a committee which is what Sarah seems to be suggesting. Um, you would think so, but no. Um, if a private member's motion or bill is passed by the House, uh, the executive can decide to accept it. And they're not rejecting it. So they're putting it through, they technically are putting it through the legislative process by referring it to committee stage and pre- proceeding it somewhere down the legislative uh, agenda by moving it on. But the fact is they don't move it on any further. So the problem we have with this doll is we have numerous private members' bills and motions 
um, being passed to committee stage, but they get they go no further. So we have. And what ones. actually happens to them there? Do they just sit there in a, on they a list somewhere and not even get addressed? They, well, they technically there was thirty one private members' bills passed by the Dáil. Uh, twenty two of them require the government, I suppose, to give them the clearance to go ahead, and the government hasn't responded to eighteen requests for a mm. money management. So they're just they're they just, just that committee. They just, they just sit there, stay. and I think that that is a frustration that members of the opposition feel in particular because they had flagged up this new system as one whereby they would be able to table bills and motion legislation and build bipartisan support and get it through. That's just not happening because the government says, yeah, that's fine. We will not oppose that is what you would hear the government say and they just let it languish in committee Sounds like an enormous waste of time. The opposition would say it is that uh, they they also fail that the means the will of the doll, that the will of the doll no longer means anything if the will of the doll is to pass this bill from Jim O'Callaghan giving the police authority more powers or for other ones the the mortgage uh, the variable interest rate bill which was passed mm-hmm. one of the first ones I think was passed when this doll sat 18 months to two years ago and they say it demeans the will of the house if It also gives a perception I think if you follow obviously the media you would get, you would have an impression I suppose mm. that when a government faces a defeat that they're going to be bound yeah. into taking action I mean one of the the, the first recent example was the pension anomaly that mm. there was a private member's bill on that which you know it's an anomaly whereby people hadn't paid enough credit and they were receiving less of a pension or payment an absurd situation where yes. because they actually yes. paid stamps many many years ago they actually get less and the TD said that, that there was publicity about a motion before the doll that night to rectify the situation which was passed which gave the misimpre- the, the wrong impression that actually the system was going to be changed now and it wasn't. So a couple of TDs said they spent quite a lot of time explaining to people affected who were in their clinics that, you know, we did pass this motion through the House but it doesn't actually mean anything. Mm. So it is demeaning the will of the doll in the eyes of the public that, you know, the doll says something you would think the political system has to react to but it's not so. Another thing I wonder about legislation, Sarah, is this alcohol legislation continues to be debated and amended and tossed back and forth. It seems to me to have been going on for ever. Yeah, well, long time. it was Leo Varadkar's proposal when he was a, when he was Minister for Health. Um, I think initially started, the priority work was started by James Riley and Roisin Shortall, which shows you just how far it goes back. It was stalled in the Shannon last year. It, it reappeared today in the Upper House. Um, but again, I mean, the intense lobbying that is going on mm. is just so severe. I mean, um, I wrote about it last last week just to say that there had been a compromise identified by the Minister for Health which will allow small shops to visibly display alcohol as long as they're kept in just two fridges. The two fridges have to be side by side and they cannot contain anything but alcohol. Now, it seems like a reasonable um, a reasonable amendment or a reasonable compromise but within hours of the story being published you know Fine Gael senators were responding to it saying that it wasn't workable that it would cost retailers a small fortune um, What if you don't want to keep your alcohol in the fridge? I don't to keep red wine in the fridge Well I I was just about to say, who would keep red wine in a fridge? Yeah, uh, yeah. See, there's, there's, I suppose, practical implications that probably haven't really been considered proper, properly. Um, you know, today the senators are meeting the minister for health at a private meeting, um, and then it'll be debated in the Shannon today. But I don't think the amendment that we see now will remain to be the amendment when the process is concluded. I think you'll see a lot of. Wheeling and dealing. Uh, and when you say lobbying, this is the drinks industry. Oh, mm. no, it goes wider than the drinks industry. I mean, in the retailers, um, you know, the actual alcohol companies themselves, um, you know, Retail Ireland, The um, there's an organisation that looks after news agents in Ireland. There's the alcohol 
Beverage Federation but of there Ireland. There are other people There's who want to see the legislation passed, aren't there? including you know industry interests like supermarkets and off licenses, for yeah, example. Yeah, main opposition party. And Paul, theoretically also, speaking, like Fianna Fáil and Fine Gael both want this to pass, yeah. but the fact that the, this intense lobbying campaign is Sarah says like it, it, nothing like it has been seen in years in Leinster House and it's chipping I mean, away I've, all the time. Since I've written about it, I have, my email has on my yeah. phone has been happening. I really? can't change anything that mm. is in the legislation but if you can imagine that a member of the media has ex- experienced this mental health, can you imagine, mm. I suppose somebody as well and it's, it's important it's, to say this, the senators, some senators rely upon, mm. you know, orgy data yeah, and stuff. These, these to, are all, to, like, because they're vocational panels, they're elected yeah. by groups that mm. probably have interests in this this uh, this particular legislation, so they have to listen to them. But what it's doing is explain that to me. They're nominated. They're by nominated groups, by, they're elected they're, by the council. Yeah, they're elected by the council. The they're nominated yeah. by a group. So you might be nominated by an industry group if you're on a certain panel. So if you're on the cultural and educational panel, for example, you could be nominated by a designated body, which could be like someone like I don't know some musical group around the country. There are a lot of them. So if you're on a different panel, you will be nominated by a panel in that industry. So if you're mm. an industrial commercial, you could get a nomination of anybody really. But so you can see where the conflict arises. But the, while they're elected by councillors, they r- rely on people to nominate them. But I think what this is doing is it, sh- it shows that despite the will of the, the government and the main opposition party, that it can be hobbled to such an extent by small concerns. So you're at a stage where, as Sarah says, you have Fine Gael centres going into the Minister of Health, raising concerns about issues, slowing it down, slowing the so entire process down, hoping that it'll eventually kill it off. So is this, given that Today is the anniversary of the election of Donald Trump. Is this the swamp? Is this the Irish version of the swamp where lobbyists just uh, slow down or stymie legislation uh, because of their own commercial interest? It's a puddle. It's <laughs> <laughs> probably a better way of looking at it. But it's the most obvious example of lobbying that, that has been on display in recent years. I think There's it's always little, lobbying. Uh, the last one I can remember, although it wasn't so overt, and it was less of a kind of punter-friendly position to argue mm-hmm. from was the packaging around tobacco. Mm-hmm. There was a lot of lobbying around that uh, because you cannot really argue in favour of tobacco. Yeah, But you can argue in favour of the small retailer on the corner who only sells eggs, uh, a few packs also, of ham in the newspaper. There were also highly expensive legal cases <laughs> taken on a, on a free speech basis yes. against that as a, you know, as well. Yeah. So, you know, know, like, I've seen the small shops uh, <laughs> Dublin Fingal that sell <laughs> eggs, a couple of packets of ham they <laughs> double, some alcohol. They double as pubs. <laughs> <laughs> so you heard it here first, drain the puddle is the slogan for, for, for the next election. Um, speaking of the next election, I'm looking here, Sarah, at a, at a Facebook post by Alan Chatter, former Fine Gael minister. Why I will not be a Fine Gael candidate in the next general election? We are going to be at the Fine Gael Ardesh, uh, next weekend. We'll be recording a podcast on Saturday afternoon, Saturday afternoon so uh, watch out for that. But um, uh, Alan Chatter is less than complimentary to his party and particularly the leadership of that party. Well, just to advise that I won't be at the Fine Gael Ardesh because I'll be in Copenhagen watching Ireland well, hopefully damn you. beat Denmark. Damn but, you. Um, I, I think we definitely do the short straw <laughs> there. For um, Indeed. But yeah, Alan Shatter, I suppose, made that... There was a lot of actually concern within the Fine Gael party late last week that he would throw his name into the hat because um, Josepha Madigan is a sitting TD, but there's mm. also a Senator, Neil Richmond, there who's hoping um, to get across the line at the next general election. And uh, Neil Richmond would have been a very close ally of uh, Leo Varadkar in the leadership campaign and stuff. So I think had Mr Shatter have come in and, you know, thrown his hat in, it would have caused a lot of... Although it's a three-seater, the Fine Gael don't really have a prospect of getting a second seat there, do they? Well, I suppose uh, it they would hope if if the Ross vote collapses, yeah. it's 
probably unlikely to happen. That, you know, the, again, the timing of the election is, yeah. you know, if okay. if the timing of the, if the general election mm. is 2019, who knows if Shane Ross like, will still stand? The, 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 and, and like, it is probably likely that Ross's vote will drop substantially, although he would still be elected. Um, he tends the constituency so carefully that it's hard to see him losing a seat, although it is a hugely volatile constituency. But if you ask anybody in Fine Gael, the constituency splits in two. If you look at the kind of, for want of a better way of putting it, the old Church of Ireland vote, Ross has that boxed off. In order for Neil Richmond to get elected, you would need to see a big, big collapse in Ross's vote. But it'd be quite hard. It is still quite hard for him to get two seats. But um, but Chatter has I love been the way making... that there's still an old Church of Ireland vote in there. Oh, there is, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Like the, but like, it's 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 that whole that 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 the constituency splits in two. And you know, if were Ross not there, Neil Richmond would have a far better chance. Of, of picking up that photo. But Alan was spent, you know, has been very public and visible in the last couple of weeks. I mean, he was on, um, he was on Cutting a, Edge Cutting Edge last week with Brendan O'Connor and Neve and Neve Horn. Um, and I think people were a little bit, you know, skeptical or cautious maybe that he would, he would um, tr- throw his name into the hat and call all, cause all hell. Um, but he informed Harry McGee actually initially before putting that post up. He told Harry on Monday that he wouldn't be uh, wouldn't be standing. And as you said, offered a very um, a very yeah, unflattering picture. It, I'll just quote here: "It has been my painful experience. There is an unacceptable disparity between the public face and private reality of the manner in which today's Fine Gael party and leadership politically engage. From my personal experience over the last three years, I couldn't, in good conscience, ask the electorate in Dublin Rathdown and those who have voted for me in the past to vote for an unreformed Fine Gael." in the next door. Yeah, I, there's a lot of bad blood though that goes mm. back bet- between Leo Varadkar and Alan Shatter. If you remember when uh, Alan Shatter was Minister for Justice, Leo was the Minister for Transport and he came in and he called the Garda whistleblowers distinguished Seems. and it started That arguably was when Leo Varadkar's star began to rise. So you can and when mar- Alan Shatter yeah, began to fall. You can so. mark Leo Varadkar's kind of ascent to the leadership from that moment because he stood out apart from the government at the time. The government at the time where you know, maintaining the line with Alan Shatter about the whistleblowers and Leo Varadkar went out on his own. At the time, it caused a lot of upset with Enda Kenny and his people and Shatter and his people. So it dates back to that. And that's when it the split came. It began the demise of Martin Callanan and mm. subsequently then Alan Shatter. So, so is it just a political grudge? This is, there's an element of that, but, you know, um, he has spoken a lot about, I suppose, I, I read an interview with him in Hot Press and I couldn't help but laugh when he talked about how he too wears fancy socks, but he never... Uh, and he goes jogging, but he doesn't invite the camera. He doesn't invite the media and he doesn't invite... I mean, there is an element of truth to what he says. There's also an element of absurdity to it, isn't there? Leo, well, it is the, criti- the funny thing is the criticism that Shatter no, raised sides, about you know, you know, if we're talking about socks as opposed to yeah, something but else, the criticism that he's the criticism that he raised of you know image conscious you know PR friendly it's exactly what the opposition say about Faradkar and it is Faradkar's Achilles heel and the people around him are acutely aware of that that's why I think they believe that there has to be some sort of concrete achievements uh, to his name before he goes to the country because they know at the moment. The idea of, you know, you're all PR, you're all spin, there's nothing really here. At the moment, is a valid attack, I would say, or one that can gain ground. But they, they acknowledge that before the election, we need to have solid stuff under our belt so we can counteract that. And Alan Shatter is actually poking that particular scam. Well, indeed, and I wonder, given that, I mean, that is the, the natural line of attack for Michal Martin, for example. Does Alan Shatter represent a view within Fine Gael? Or is um, he really... Just I think he's kind of maybe, I suppose, a view, the old school, you know, mm. Fine Gael. I mean, mm. the, the kind of... The end of Kenny, uh, Finnegale would you know would articulate that. <laughs> he also fell out with Enda Kenny. Let's not forget. 
Alan Shatter. <laughs> Like he did he, have he, some choices about Ender Kenny. He has some track record of falling out with people. Well, I suppose he, I mean, he, he had, a, he he had a, and he does have reason to feel aggrieved because you know every report and every uh, inquiry that was done into the, that handling at the at the time, he came out having done his job, and the only thing yeah. he should have actually lost his job for was disclosing information about Mick Wallace on, on the television. On the television, and everything yeah. else he did, he did above board. And he was also shafted in the constituency by the party, wasn't he? He was, yeah, and I think that's another bugbear that. Did the he was asked to I think give certain areas of the constituency towards Josepha Madigan, and there was a huge blazing around the constituency the last time. I remember the post mortem was done by Fine Gael, alluded to this. I think he had a spectacular falling out with Brian Hayes as well, as far mm-hmm. as I know, because Brian Hayes is director of elections. So there's all sorts of complexities in this but particular one. Felix Rice, he he is picking at a hole that the opposition are also picking at, and it's sticking. You know, I mean, um, in most media commentary. Um, that is of Leo Varadkar and indeed in, in the wider circle is that he is more uh, spin over substance and Chatter again is just scraping away at that and, give, and giving rise to the perception that the Taoiseach cares more I suppose about his Facebook his weekly Facebook video messages than he does about I suppose engaging with Fine Gael voters on the ground and you know it, it, it's working Does that then put more pressure on them than there would it be anyway to act and to show concrete achievements sooner rather than later. One thousand percent. I mean, that is why there is a renewed focus on the public health alcohol bill because this was his bill when he was minister for health, and he is determined to get it to get it through. Um, there's also issues with regards to you know he's made a he's made a conscious effort about um, regulating. Um, IVF in this country and offering financial assistance. He's putting a lot of pressure on individual ministers to get legislation mm. through and to make real, you mm. know, impact. In particular, O Murphy as well with the um, high-rise buildings to, you know, to lift restrictions on high-rise buildings. He wants to go to the country saying, "Well, I said I'd do this, this, and this, and I've mm. I've done this, this, and this." Of course, we're going to be discussing all this in Cavan at the Fine Gael Ardesh on Saturday. Apart from Sarah. Uh, who's Woo-hoo. who's going to be in Copenhagen? Uh, no really bitterness at all. Republic of Opportunity. Sarah will be supporting the Republic, the Republic of Ireland. <laughs> Absolutely. Listen, Sarah, thanks very much for joining me. And that's it for this edition of Inside Politics. Thanks to our producer, Jennifer Ryan, and our engineer, JJ Vernon. Remember, again, you can find us in Cavan. Uh, we'll be, our podcast will be going up later on Saturday afternoon following the Fine Gael Ardesh. So we're looking forward to that. But remember, you can always find us on irishtimes.com slash podcast, or you can subscribe via iTunes or whatever your preferred podcast provider might be. And if you want to get in touch with me, you can mail me at hlinehan at irishtimes.com or you can always find me on Twitter. Until the next time, goodbye and thanks very much indeed for listening.